You're listening to the Revolution Church Podcast. To learn more, including our gathering times in Crossville, Tennessee, visit us at CrossvilleRevolution.com. Well, we're in our fifth week in our series where we're going through the Sermon on the Mount. If you're new to Rev Church, then what we like to do about 90% of the time, 95% of the time, is we preach verse by verse through books of the Bible or through large sections of Scripture. We feel like that's the best way to study individually and corporately because it gives you the full breadth and the full context of what Scripture means, and we don't pull it out of context, so to speak. I want to start today uh, by telling you guys about a story I heard about a couple that were sitting on their front porch. And this may be like the only joke the whole time, okay, because we got some heavy Scripture today, okay, y'all? Uh, But they're sitting on their front porch. It's not time. The porch lights off. It's kind of dark outside. And the husband hears his wife say, I love you. And he looks up because he can't really see her. And he tries to make her out and says, was that you or the wine talking? She says, oh, it was me talking to the wine. (laughs) You know what I mean? If you're Baptist, you ain't coming back, right? You're like, oh. He talked about alcohol. It's not what this sermon's about. The sermon is about love. I I really think today's message really specifically deals with the love you are perceived to have for your spouse inside the context of marriage. And if you're single in here, the love that you will have maybe for your future spouse, and so it absolutely applies. Of course, the way you treat your spouse and the way you prepare yourself for your future marriage also bleeds over into the way you love Jesus. We're in the second week of a section inside the section of the Scripture of the Sermon on the Mount. The section inside this section of the Sermon on the Mount is called the six great antitheses that Jesus gives. You've heard these before. Don't let that language confuse you. It's the points in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, you've heard it said this way, but I tell you. Last week we talked about anger, and we tied that into murder that Jesus taught us. And this week we're going to try to get through two of the antitheses. We may just get through one because we had baptism, and I want to be a good steward of your time. But this week we're going to see Jesus, and again, we're shooting both barrels this week, so if you're here like for a baptism or something like that, Uh, you're going to need a mind diaper in about 30 minutes, okay, y'all? So uh, just get ready, okay? But this week, we're going to talk about purity and tie that into really marriage. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 27 through 32, and we're going to see four things that Jesus tells us we're to protect in our lives individually and in the context of marriage. Now, again, we may just get through three of these and not make it to the fourth, uh, depending on time, but we're going to try to get through them all. So let's start Matthew chapter 5. Let's start in verse 27. Y'all with me? Say, I am. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. The first thing that Jesus says we're supposed to protect is our heart. Now, in about 10, 15 minutes, I'm going to do my best to give you some clear teaching on the three parts of man, and we're going to go to a little bit of the deeper end of the pond 
to talk about how all this ties together because if you get confused, well, what's my heart mean? That's just so random. It just seems so vague in Scripture. We're going to specifically talk about what he means. But Jesus here is really reiterating something we see in the book of Proverbs, chapter 4. Above all else, guard your heart for it determines the course of your life. When Jesus says, you've heard that it said, don't commit adultery, what that's defined as is the unlawful intimacy between two people who are not married. So Jesus is making clear that intimacy is meant to be between a man and a woman inside the context of marriage. Now, if you'll allow me, I know I teach you this all the time every time we land on this. If you're in here, you've heard the issue of sex or intimacy being taught in one of three different ways. If you listen to the way the world teaches it, they tell you that sex is a God that's to be worshipped. So don't even consider what the Bible says. Lay your body down on the altar of a bed. Do whatever you want to do because after all, your sexuality, nobody can tell you what to do with it, especially God. It's not a God to be worshipped. If you grew up in a very religious church that tended to be more legalistic, Maybe they didn't say this, but they made you feel like that sex wasn't a God. It was gross. We're just not going to talk about this. We're not going to discuss this. And if you ever mess up, then we're going to bring you up on stage. Like if you get pregnant as a teenager, you're going to come up on stage before everybody. And uh, we're going to embarrass you in front of the whole church, even though we got deacons that are hooked on porn. But we won't talk about that. Am I stepping on any toes? Anybody with me say amen. It's crazy. It's gross. Let's not talk about it. Let's not deal with it. That's not the biblical view at all. What we teach you, and we went through the Song of Solomon verse by verse several years ago. We'd encourage you to go watch that. Sex is a gift from God that's meant to be enjoyed inside the context of a marriage between a husband and wife. The Bible teaches that it is a gift that is meant to be enjoyed and meant to be awesome. Everybody say that with me. Awesome. That was kind of creepy. I'm sorry. It'll get worse. What Jesus is teaching here is how to fully enjoy this gift inside the context of your marriage now, or if you're not married, how to prepare so that you can fully enjoy this gift inside the context of your marriage in the future. Jesus tells us that looking at someone who isn't your spouse with lust is the same thing as committing this physical act of adultery in your heart. What he's really talking about is not just looking. He's talking about any form of sexual immorality. Now, you heard us say this last week, and I said we're probably going to repeat this in every one of these antithesis sermons. But just keep in mind, once again, we see this concept that Jesus is not just concerned with your outward actions. He's concerned with your inward attitude and what's going on on the inside. He continues in verse 29, and he says this, If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. The second thing he says to protect is he says, protect your eyes. Now, Jesus here is employing something called hyperbole, 
which means that Jesus is using exaggerated language intended to make an emotional impact on the audience that he's speaking to so that it really drives the principle home deep into their mind and their hearts. When Jesus says, when you look at someone, that's written in what's known as the present participle form. A better translation of what Jesus is saying is, is when you keep looking at someone with lust. The idea is this. I've been teaching my son this. He's 12 years old. He's growing up. He's always noticed girls, but he's really noticing girls now. Y'all know what I'm talking about. And I've taught him, listen, you're a man. You can't help but recognize beauty. Right, y'all, like cute guy walks in, you can't help but notice. Cute girl walks in, you can't help but notice. It's not the first look that gets you in trouble, son. It's the second and the third and the fourth look that gets you in trouble. It's when you, as Jesus says here, you keep on looking. Protect your eyes. In Matthew chapter 6, we're going to get to this passage in the Sermon on the Mount. There's a concept in the context of speaking about our treasure and generosity, and we're going to get to this in a few weeks. We'll, we'll reread this and really unpack it. But in Matthew 6, 22 through 24, this directly ties to protecting your eyes. Listen to what it says. The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Protect your eyes. You know, ladies in here, I understand that um, you struggle with lust. And I get that. I get that women can have lustful addictions and things like that. But the overwhelming majority of those things typically happens in men. Not only does the Bible tell us this, but almost every single bit of research we have shows that you know, men tend to be more visual. Uh, women are more relational. Men tend to be more physical. They like to feel things, in other words. Uh, women tend to be more uh, verbalized things. They like to talk. And so somebody's elbowing their spouse right now. So when it comes to protecting your eyes, I think, and ladies, I say all that just to say, you don't know the struggle for men. You, there's no way I could verbalize how protecting our eyes is of the utmost importance and how hard it is. Every single man in here probably has a similar testimony to mine. That somewhere around the fifth, sixth, seventh grade, you went to a buddy's house who knew where a stash of his dad's magazines were. Every guy in here can relate to walking through the woods with his buddies and the pages of a wet magazine sticking together and you pulling them apart trying to look at pornographic images. That's my generation. You may be in here and you've had one of these your whole life. And if you're in here and you're like, I can't believe we're talking about this in big church. Are you freaking kidding me? If we don't teach our kids about this, somebody's going to. Somebody's going to talk about it. The world's going to tell them all they need to know about sex. 
So maybe the first time you saw something was on a YouTube video or an Instagram post. And the men in here can remember probably the exact place you were. You can remember the smell. You can remember the circumstances. You can remember that when your eyes weren't protected, you had this rush of feelings come over you that was like excitement mixed with, if you were raised in any kind of Christian morals, you also had like this guilt and this adrenaline. And then to take it further, you probably didn't understand, even though you had this guilt and you knew it displeased God, you knew it was disrespectful to women. You're kind of like Paul when he said, the very thing I hate is the thing I keep doing. Like a dog that's returning to his vomit, you're just, you know what I mean? He didn't understand why. Why is there such a pull on this with me? This is why Jesus says, protect your eyes. Because it can cause major damage. He goes to the nth degree and says, be in danger of hell if you don't protect your eyes. Jesus is saying we shouldn't look at things that we know are sinful. He's saying we shouldn't stare at people as if they're physical objects. Jesus says essentially here, be blind to the things that make you lust. He's not saying get rid of your eyes and gouge them out. What he's saying is get rid of anything that causes your eyes to create lust in your mind. Again, in just a minute, I'm going to teach you how this process works. So for some of us, we need to really take an inventory of what is it that's causing lust in my mind. For some of you, it might be TV. Some of you may be able to watch TV and it's no big deal. But for some of you, you're like, man, I got to get off Netflix. I got to give up this show. Some of you, maybe you need to give your phone up. You need to go back to the old flip phone. Anybody remember the flippity phones? Remember those? It ain't too smart for you. You know? It's causing an addiction in your life. Listen. Dig a little deeper here. For some of you, it might mean that the job you work at, where you're around people of the opposite sex that you're attracted to, you need to quit. Go work at Bucky's. And if you get an employee discount, let me know. You know what I'm saying? But this is how serious it is. Would you rather do that than be in danger of hell? For some of you, it means. If you can't go to the gym without your eyes causing you to lust, give up your gym membership. Sit on the couch and eat oatmeal cream pies. I don't know. You know what I mean? Take care of your body. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying, like, that's better than being in danger of what Jesus is talking about here. Protect your eyes. Let's continue in verse 30. He continues, and notice, notice, I'm going to try to explain this here in just a second. Notice the way he explains these. First, it's the heart, and then it moves to the eyes. 
Now it moves to the hands. It never starts with the hands. It always starts in the heart. Starts in the eyes. And it moves to the hands. Look what it says. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. A little bit of pastoral advice. Proverbs 16, 27. If you struggle with pornography or doing things that you shouldn't with your hands. I don't need to explain that any further. Here's the scripture for you. A worthless man digs up evil. Idle hands are the devil's workshop. You ever heard that before? Men get in trouble when they have nothing to do and they're by themselves. Specifically, when it comes to pornography and these types of addictions, you're never sitting right next to your wife. Remember David and Bathsheba? David was not where he was supposed to be and he had nothing to do when he got in trouble. The men were off to war and David should have been there with them fighting the battles. Instead, he was on his rooftop checking out Bathsheba. He has her come over. He gets her pregnant, kills her husband, gets into all that mess because he had idle hands. Protect your hands. The lesson is clear. Stay away from anything that stimulates lust within you, whether looking or touching or whatever it is. One theologian says, looking lights the fire of your imagination, but touching pours gasoline on the fire. Remember that old song? Don't tell me no lies, but keep your hands to yourself. Anybody remember that? That's my people in here, my old people. Yeah, that's right. Sing it with me. One, two, three. Don't tell me no lies, but keep your hands to yourself. Jesus is saying, keep your hands to yourself. Look at your neighbor and say, don't touch me. <laughs> if your neighbor is your husband or your wife, look at them now and say, you can touch me. That's okay. So it's all good. I encourage that. It's not gotten awkward wet yet. Just wait. Okay. You guys get the idea given here. If you remember back in our spiritual warfare series, I think I was teaching on the helmet of salvation at the end of 2022. Um, I did a teaching where I talked about the three different parts of salvation or three phases of salvation, if you will, or the process of getting saved. And I tied that in to what historically is known as the three different parts of man, spirit, soul, and flesh. I want to do some reiterating of that and, and review of that because it's good. we got a lot of new people, but also some of you guys need to hear it several times to really get it. And I want to tie that directly into what Jesus is talking about here so we can see exactly what he's saying. If you remember, I told you that there were three parts to the process of salvation or as I like to put it, three steps to completion for salvation. Now, I'm going to make some statements that clarify what I'm saying. I'm not preaching a works-based salvation. I'm not preaching a salvation where you can lose your salvation or become unjustified. You'll get it as I go through this. The first step of the process is what we call justification in theology classes. And this is where you become free from the penalty of sin. In other words, this is the moment you pray to accept Christ. You repent of your sins and you pray to accept Christ. In that moment, you are justified. That's why they call it justification. In other words, the blood of Jesus covers you and you're not bound for hell anymore in that moment from that moment on. Now, let me make a clarifying statement because this may get confusing. The moment you are justified, you will never be more saved in that moment than the day you are justified. You receive, the moment you are justified, all the salvation you are ever going to need. 
When you're justified and you accept Christ, this is the first step to the salvation process. The next two steps are guaranteed. Is everybody with me? Say amen. Okay? So you're justified. You get saved. Secondly, you go through what's called sanctification. This is where you are free from the power of sin in your life on this earth. In other words, you start to become more like Jesus. And once again, let me say this. Sanctification is not possible unless you go through justification. Okay? You have to get saved first to then start to become like Jesus. You've heard me say, you don't clean yourself up and then get saved. You get saved and then God starts to clean you up. The third part of the process is what we call glorification. Glorification is one day when you die, or if Jesus comes back before you die, you go to what we call glory, okay? There's a reason we call it glory, and I don't know why I'm doing exclamation points with my fingers, but glory, heaven. When you go to heaven, you will be free from the presence of sin. No more temptation, no more sin. You're given a perfect body. You're given the mind of Christ. Now again, let me say this. Your salvation is complete at step one justification. Once step one is done, step two and three are guaranteed. Let me say this as well with that. If you claim to have went through step one and step two doesn't happen, it's evidence that step one never happened. In other words, if you say you got saved in good old Crossville, Tennessee, where everybody at five years old says they're saved, but there's absolutely no change in your life whatsoever, which you can't find an example of in Scripture where somebody gets saved and their life isn't turned upside down as a result of accepting Christ, then you're not saved. Does that make sense to everybody? Say amen. Let me put it like this. If you're a Christian in here, salvation has happened to you, it is happening to you, and it will happen to you. Now, if we tie this in to what traditionally is known as the three parts of man, the three parts of man, there's some debate as to whether or not really there's only two parts to man. Um, I don't even really know where I land on this. Sometimes the soul and the spirit seem to be interchangeable in certain scriptures, but the traditional way to view it is, if you guys could put up that graphic, if you remember this graphic, you have a heart, which Jesus says, protect your heart, which is your spirit. You have a mind, which your mind is being renewed. This is represented by the scripture we're talking about today through your eyes. And then you have a body, which is your flesh, which is represented in the scripture we're talking about today with your hands. So your spirit, which is your heart, is changed when you're justified and you go through the first step of salvation. God gives you a new heart, so to speak. Listen to Romans chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Your mind is the sanctification process. You are starting to become more like Jesus. And the sanctification process is when your mind is being renewed or the things you look at start to change and you start to think, I don't need to look at this in our context today because it's going to lead to bad things happening in my mind. 
Romans chapter 12, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. For our purposes today, by the renewing of the things that you look at and you focus on. Philippians chapter 2 verse 12, we're to work out our salvation daily. That's sanctification. That's renewing our mind. Every day we're going through a process where we're not perfect, but we're trying to become more like Jesus. Are y'all still with me? Say, I am. Okay, then you've got the body. The body is your flesh, it's your hands. Your body gets saved again one day when you go to heaven. Listen to Romans chapter 8, verse 23. In the NLT version, it says, And we believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit. Isn't that crazy that the Bible says that? You're a believer in here, you've got the Holy Spirit, but you're groaning. You ever feel like that as a Christian? Man, this world's crazy. You're groaning. Why do I keep struggling with sin? Groaning. I know I've got the Holy Spirit and God's with me, but man, this is really, really hard. The idea is until you get to heaven, you're always going to struggle in your flesh. You're always going to struggle with lust. You're always going to struggle with anger. You're always going to struggle with lying. Is everybody with me? Say amen. It says... We groan even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory. For we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We too wait with eager with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as His adopted children, including the new bodies He has promised us. Romans 13, our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. Make some clarifying statements. You receive salvation in its first phase when you got saved. You are receiving salvation in its second phase as you live on this earth and you try to become more like Christ. And that happens through your mind. You will receive salvation in its final phase when you get to heaven one day. Make sense to everybody say amen. Now, as I said, on this earth, you will constantly struggle with your flesh. Always. You're going to be thinking to yourself, why is it so hard to live by what the Bible says? This is why Paul said in 1 Corinthians, I batter my body and bring it into servitude. He's like, I, I have to batter my body. I got to get my flesh into submission. So the process that happens when you get saved as it pertains to the three parts of man and what we're talking about today, hang with me, is salvation that happens in your heart has to transfer from your heart to your mind and then your body. What Jesus is talking about is your eyes, when they look at something, go straight into your mind. And then your mind transfers what it's taken down to your heart and corrupts your heart. And then your heart tells your hands to do something sinful. Let me say it this way. The eyes entice the heart, but the heart enticed by the eyes directs the hands. When you do something sinful with lust, the hands act in response to the attitude and the direction of the heart. In the very first sermon in the Sermon on the Mount series, Pastor Brandon 
in chapter 5, verse 8, I kind of rewrote it here, told us that we need to gain and pursue a pure heart. The only way we can receive this pure heart is as a grace gift from God through faith. In other words, your heart is only made right when you are right or you're good with God. Two lanes to go down here. If you're here this weekend, you're joining us online, and you haven't put your trust in Jesus. In other words, your heart has never been renewed. It's never been made right with God. Your mind will never be renewed, and you'll never defeat lust. For that matter, you'll never defeat anger. You'll never defeat lying. You'll never defeat any of the things that Jesus talks about in these antitheses. Your heart has got to be made right with God in order for your hands to change. For the Christian in here, you've been justified. You need to understand that it is impossible to defeat lust in your life if you're not close to God. I'll say it like this, the closer you get to God, the purer your heart becomes, and then the easier it is to make a covenant with your eyes and not look at things that cause you to sin through your hands. Does this make sense to everybody say amen? You have to get close to God to defeat the sinful actions in your life. They've done studies that have shown that a Christian man that reads his Bible four times a week is more than 70% less likely to look at pornography than those that don't. You want to know why the church is so full of men that are addicted to porn? I mean, the stats show like over 50% of men that are surveyed in church, by the way, which they're more likely to lie, because they're not close to Jesus. They're backslid, as we put it, or they fall away from God. They never read their Bible. They never pray. They come to church on average. A regular attender now in America comes on average about 1.2 times a month post-COVID because you got out of the habit, didn't see the importance of it. It's no wonder you're struggling. It's no wonder. It's no wonder if you're struggling with anger or lust or any of these things. Your heart's not pure. You're not good with God, if this makes sense. Now, just as a side note, I would tell you too that this is the reason why God tells you to go to church as well. Because I understand that there are many different situations represented in this room, and just let me unpack one. There's a single mom in here who has a son, and she doesn't know how to talk to her son about lust. I get it. What are you going to do? Go home? Pastor Josh preached a sermon on lust. Let's talk about this, son. Awkward. Everybody say, awkward. So this is why the church is here. Because if you've got a son that does that, they need to be at Rev Students every single Wednesday night. So they have Stanley Dunn to talk to. 
So they have Donovan Wadsworth to talk to. So they have Josh Pierce to talk to. They have a godly man in their life that can help them work through this. Because guys, it's not a matter of if someone is going to struggle with lust in our culture. It's a matter of when. The average age someone sees hardcore pornography is around the fourth grade now. We were looking at Playboy magazines. They're looking at full-on everything. So you better be here. You better be close to God. Makes sense to everybody say amen? I was going to say something else, but I'm not going to. <laughs> sounded like a kid. Say it. I think we might have just enough time to get through these next ones. And I want to get through this next antithesis because it ties directly to lust. So let's get through it. Verse 31. Y'all with me? Say, I am. It has been said anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, keep that in mind, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. The last thing he tells us to do is protect our marriage. Protect our marriage. Protect your marriage if you're married in here. If you're in here and you're single, protect your future marriage. I'm going to give you just some broad statements, six of them that will clarify what Jesus says in these few short verses. Number one, what Jesus is saying is clearly God's design for marriage is one man and one woman until separated by death. The idea is when you said in your marriage vows, till death do us part, that you like really meant that. Number two, the physical act of adultery is the biblical reason for divorce clear cut here that the physical act of adultery is grounds for divorce. Why is this important? This may be the most important reason I'm going over this. Because many people will take the previous passage that was about lust in your heart and how that's adultery, and they'll apply it to their marriage. And I've seen so many people try to do something godly in a sinful way. Let me explain to you. I've counseled so many people, and the wife's like, I'm in a horrible marriage. I don't want to fight for my marriage. I don't want to work on it. I don't want to go to counseling. I don't want to do any of that stuff. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to do anything wrong. I'm going to force him to do something wrong so that I can get out of this and get around this marriage. I'm going to cut him off sexually. I'm going to belittle him as a man and show him no respect. And when he does eventually find a physical outlet to get his sexual temptation out and his sexual feelings out because ladies you know the only godly sexual outlet your husband has is you everybody look at your neighbor no i'm just kidding okay you he can't look at nothing he can't he can't think of nothing else it is 100 you so if you cut him off most men are going to find a physical outlet in some way and then when he does that, they say, well, there you go. He committed adultery. I found porn on the computer. I'm done. I'm justified now to get out of this marriage. No, you're completely wrong. A man says, I'm sick of being married to my wife. I'm tired of it. So I was raised in dead religion that taught legalism. And so what I'm going to do is I'm just going to treat her like crap. 
I'm just going to treat her horribly. And when I drive her into the arms of another man, it won't be my fault because she's the one that did it. No. No. See, when, when the Bible is used in a way where you use it to say one spouse or the other needs to follow this, but I don't have to, it's become weaponized at that point. And this is what Jesus is addressing. Because men were looking at their wives of the day, and that goes with another point coming up really, really soon. And they were divorcing them for all kinds of reasons. Number three, divorce and remarriage without biblical grounds constitutes adultery. Clear teaching here. There are circumstances outside of just adultery. If your spouse dies, if you're in an abusive relationship, uh, if you're, if you're uh, and that's a little wonky right there, right? But if, you're, uh, if your uh, spouse leaves you, then their sin is not on you, so you can go and get remarried. But the teaching here is clear. I do want to back this up by telling you God does have bountiful grace. Remember uh, David and Bathsheba? Got started with a lot of sin, didn't it? Messed up. Guess what? They repented. And God gave them second marriage grace. He can give you second marriage grace, third marriage grace, four marriage grace if you repent and you actually mean it. How do we know that's true? Well, you know the Proverbs 31 woman? Guess who that's written about? That sinner Bathsheba. God gave him grace. So in your marriage now, he can give you grace, but you just need to repent and you need to change. Fourthly, one of the reasons this section of Scripture was written, I could have written this better this point, one of the reasons this section of Scripture was written was to protect women from ridiculous divorce claims that would ruin their reputation. Jesus is addressing a culture that had two views on divorce. The conservative view fell more in line with what the Bible said. The conservative view was a man could divorce his wife if his wife had committed adultery and there were witnesses to it. But the liberal view, which is what most people took of the day, is if the wife had any kind of indecency, anything that even displeased their husband, which could include burning dinner, then the husband could leave the wife. In fact, Josephus, a Jewish historian, wrote this, a man can divorce his wife for any other cause whatsoever, just give her written assurance that he will never use her as his wife anymore. So there were men that were using Scripture to justify leaving their wife for whatever reason, and here's why that's important. Whenever a man would leave his wife, it was character assassination. It would doom his wife to a life of poverty. It was the equivalent to having a scarlet letter burned on your cheek. The wife was then an outcast. You remember Joseph and Mary? Mary gets pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Joseph finds out he thinks she hooked up with another guy. And the Bible says in Luke chapter 2, he was going to divorce her quietly as to not disgrace her so that she wouldn't be doomed to a life of poverty after that. And so he's making clear that this is to protect women. Protect women. Once again, women are not property. Women have a voice inside a marriage, and women should be treated as God's daughters. If you're a man in here, and you're not treating your wife 
with the utmost respect, how do you think God's going to treat you? Because that's his daughter, man. I tell my daughter all the time, she's 15. I'm like, if some idiot punk shows up to get you and treats you bad, I'm not afraid to go back to jail. I don't care how big the church is. It makes me mad just to think about it. i got to remember the sermon from last week about anger and murder. You know what I'm saying? I know what to do with the body. I'm not kidding, man. i got a feeling this may be used as a testimony in court someday, right? We all heard him say it. How do you think God's going to treat you when you treat his daughters bad? The ones he bled and died for. So it's not, woman, you do this and you do what I say. You understand what I'm saying? I read an article a few days ago. My wife was telling me about an article where men used to like spank their wives in the early 1900s. That sounded really bad because I was talking about lust. Like I don't mean like, I don't mean like a kinky thing, okay, y'all? Not like kinky spank. I mean like uh, like for bad behavior. That's the idea here. No, women aren't treated like this. So God is protecting women. Do y'all get it? Everybody say amen. Okay, let me get through these last two. That was really embarrassing. Sorry about that. Number five, divorce is never commanded. God's desire is for reconciliation if possible. Jesus clearly expects divorce to be a rare exception in the church. Jesus was a firm believer in marital faithfulness and was opposed to a flippant, casual approach to divorce. Fifthly, if you've committed adultery, you should repent and seek reconciliation. To close, here's the idea. You know, we, we closed with this last week, really, when we talked about anger. If you remember, what did Jesus teach us on anger? If you're at the altar getting ready to make a sacrifice and realize someone, a Christian brother or sister, has something against you, leave immediately, go be reconciled to them. If you're going to court with an adversary, somebody that is lost, you better make up quickly before it gets out of hand. This is the idea here. Protect your marriage. In other words, God cares not just about your relationship to Him. He also cares about your relationships with other people on this earth, especially your marriage. To reiterate and repeat what I said last week, you cannot claim that you are right with God and be wrong with people. Listen to me in here. Here's what he's saying. You cannot claim to be right with God and be wrong with your spouse. You cannot claim, I love Jesus, I'm a godly person, but you treat your wife like crap. You treat your husband like crap. you got to protect your marriage. Make sense to everybody? Say amen. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you so much for today. Thank you for everyone's uh, patience with me as I've went just a hair over. Uh, we thank you for the word. God, that leads us and guides us. Lord knows that lust is a struggle for probably every single person in here on some level. And you're making it clear that if there's somebody in here sitting here going, it's not a problem for me. I've just lusted one time. Well, you're the same as somebody with a full-blown addiction. And we need your grace and we need your mercy. I pray, God, especially for the men under the sound of my voice. <laughs> We're called to storm the gates of hell. And the men are called to lead the way. 
And Lord, there's some men in here that need deliverance from lust. Because we can't storm the gates of hell with a box of tissues in one hand and a bottle of lotion in the other. So I pray for freedom. I pray for every marriage represented in here. I pray that today is a lesson on your grace when it comes to marriage. We thank you so much for everything. In Jesus' name, all God's people said. If you're encouraged by today's message, be sure and rate us and subscribe on iTunes.